So I've been going through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids. We started off. I'm, I'm curious. I'm always curious about people. When you read the Chronicles of Narnia, I don't know how many of you read it on a regular basis, but when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, do you start it in the way it was written? Or do you start it in what is in the Chronicle of Narnia world, chronological order? I'm just curious. Anybody that does it chronologically? Yeah, so like, well, I guess I should rephrase that. When I say chronologically, chronologically as it was written? Who does it as it was written? So you start off with the line, the witch in the wardrobe. No? Yeah, there's a few of you. Okay, okay, there's a few of you. You're the purists, right? <laughs> we are C.S. Lewis purists. Uh, I'm not a purist, sorry. I start off with the magician's nephew. And I do it just because it's easier. I, I, growing up, my family always did the line, the witch in the wardrobe first. That was the way we did it. My mom is a C.S. Lewis purist. I am not. I have rebelled. Uh, and, and so we start off with, you know, the magician's nephew, and we've walked through all the different books all the way to the last battle. And in the last battle, there is, it's going to shock you, it's going to surprise you if you've never read the series, there is a last battle. So, uh, so uh, if you're not familiar with the series, on the la- in the last battle, I won't go into all the details. There's lots of stories. It's a lot, uh, there's a lot of in-depth stories that are for kids, and yet children can le- or uh, adults can learn a lot from it too. But in the last battle, there's the good guys and there's the bad guys, right? And I won't get into all the different details, but there is a last battle. There is a final battle in Narnia. And the good guys are in need of desperate help. The good guys are outnumbered. The good guys are going to die. The good guys are going to fall to the bad guys. And throughout all the series, you are introduced to these characters that are the dwarves. And the dwarves sometimes can go bad. Sometimes they can go good. For the last several books, they've been good guys. They've been helping out the good guys. But in the last battle, they they come against uh, some lies that are told. And they decide because of these lies, they're never going to believe anyone again. In fact, they say over and over again, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. We won't be taken in anymore. We won't buy into your lies ever again. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And so they're watching this battle play out. And they're watching the good guys get pinned up against a cliff. And they all have their bows and arrows. And they can come to the rescue of the good guys. But they don't. Instead, even as some help comes for the good guys, they fire on the help. But they're not exactly bad guys, because then when the bad guys start to overcome the good guys and start to win, the dwarfs fire on the bad guys. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. They won't be taken in. Well, we fast forward a little bit further and the dwarfs are now in need of help. Aslan, who represents God, comes and he, he uh, takes care of the world of Narnia. And now they're in what's called Aslan's country. And the dwarfs have made it in, but the dwarfs are also blind. And they can't see that they're in there because they won't be taken in. So they think they're in darkness. They're stumbling around in darkness. They refuse to believe the goodness of Aslan. And the good guys, the warriors that they betrayed, are in there with them. And what is the first thing that they want to do? They want to cut off their heads. Look at those traitors. They're here. I can't believe they're here. Let's cut their heads off. And so they're getting ready to cut their heads off. But one of the main characters throughout the whole series, her name is Lucy. And she says, no, 
They need help. We have to help them. And she starts to plead with all the other characters that want to kill the dwarves, that want to cut the dwarves' head off. She, She says, no, they need help. Now, I think the way the, the warriors were treating the dwarves is how most of us would treat them. That's kind of the default mode of humanity, isn't it? You tried to kill me, I'm going to chop off your head. That's not cool. I don't like people that try to kill me, it's time for me to, to chop off their heads. I think that's the way we operate. It's kind of a tit-for-tat situation, right? When we were walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we ta- called it the, the wooden rule. Treat others how they treat you. That's the default of humanity. So I think every single one of us could relate with the, the names in particular are Tyrion, he was the king, and Eustace. Both of them wanted to cut off the dwarf's head, and I think we would relate. I think you and I, for the most part, would be like, yes, they are traitors, they tried to kill us, off with their heads. But Lucy's love was so much greater. And it is that kind of love, that self-sacrificial love, that instead of seeing others as the enemy who need to have their heads chopped off, we see others, in particular those who are walking in darkness, as those who need help. It is so easy in our culture to pit the Christian's against those who are walking in darkness and to see those who are walking in darkness as the, e- as the enemy and to see them as people that need to be taught a lesson instead of seeing them as those people that need help. To actually love those who are the most difficult to love, those who are seen as the enemies, is what we are called to, and yet I think it is almost impossible for us to do as humans. So the only way we can love our enemy, the only way we can love those who are the most difficult to love, is to be plugged into the very source of love. And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our sermon series, uh, Christ is Life, a study through First John. We've been walking through 1 John. We're already to 1 John 2, 7, and that is where we will pick up right now. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So when we first started the series, we talked about how John doesn't lay out like, a, uh, he doesn't have this flowing logical argument where it's like one plus two equals Three, he instead has this like beautifully written circular, it's not circular logic, but it is a circular type of letter where he comes back to different themes over and over again. And we kind of see this right away uh, within this one. You know, some people would get a little bit confused. I'll admit for years this kind of confused me. I am writing to you no new commandment. Oh, wait a second. At the same time, it is a new commandment. So which is it? Is it an old commandment or a new commandment? 
before we even examine that question, let's jump in with, it's not a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had heard from the beginning. So we might actually start with, what is the beginning that he's asking, or that he's talking about? And there's a lot of different people who have different ideas. Is it the beginning of the church? This is an old commandment that you had from the beginning of the church. Or is this an old commandment that you had from the beginning of your own salvation? Is this an old commandment that came from the Mosaic Law? Maybe it's an old commandment that came from the beginning of the world. And I think that's what it is. I think we find the answer in the term, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now that, that word, word, is plugged all the way back into uh, chapter 1, verse 1, concerning the word of life. And we've already made the connection that that's also connected with uh, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so we see this idea of the word being Jesus Christ. So the idea I think that he's getting at here is that this is an old commandment that is from the beginning of creation, It is from God himself because God is love. So from all of eternity, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been dancing around in this love. And they have been loving each other in such a way for all of eternity. So from the beginning of creation itself, this is an old commandment. It's an ancient commandment. This command reflects the very nature and the very character of God. So we might say it is ancient. It's before humanity. But then we pick up in verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's not just a new command. It's also an old command. So which is it? Is it new or is it old? Well, Jesus doesn't actually clarify this for us if we turn towards the Gospels. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 37, Jesus states, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So all of the Old Testament can be summed up in love God and love others. That's it. So it is an ancient commandment. But we also see Jesus calls this same thing a new commandment. In John 13, this is the upper room, you know, we talked about it a little bit before communion. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, he takes his disciples up to this upper room where he starts to give them all kinds of instruction and he celebrates the Passover dinner with them. And during this instruction, in verse, or chapter 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So we see that this is a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So which is it? Is it an old commandment or a new commandment? And I think the answer is actually both. It's a both and. It is an old commandment and a new commandment. The key here is in John 13, verse 34, when he says, Just as I have loved you. Because God is love. Jesus is God. Jesus is love. And during his earthly ministry, he modeled this love for us. 
So throughout all of the Old Testament, this is like pointing, but it's just a shadow. It's, it's helping us try to understand what love for God and love for others is. But when Jesus comes, who is the very embodiment of love, we get to see love with fresh new eyes. We didn't fully understand what love was until Jesus came and he showed us in person. He modeled this perfect love for us that we could not quite comprehend until he came. Now that Jesus has modeled this love, and now that we have an indwelling spirit, we can view this command with fresh eyes. So it's an old commandment. It's an ancient commandment. It was around forever with the triune God. But it's a commandment that we can now see with fresh eyes. Because it's a commandment that was perfectly modeled by Jesus. And then he writes, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the word because gives us the reason why he calls this a good uh, new commandment. And I think it helps us understand the argument that I just laid out. In darkness, you cannot see. In darkness, it is impossible to fill this command. And true light is already shining, meaning we can see this command with fresh eyes. We can actually fully understand it now. So we see how Jesus modeled this love. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning that Jesus is God. It's one of the greatest verses there is for uh, Jesus' deity. He is God. He's on par with God. He's equal to God. But he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. This is true love. Taking the form of a servant, he became obedient, even to the point of of death, the death on the cross. So how much did Jesus love his enemies? He loved them to the point that he was willing to die for them. So Jesus modeled this love through self-sacrifice. He easily could have been born to Caesar, the most powerful man in the world at the time. He could have been born to great fanfare. He easily could have uh, called on legions of angels to do his bidding. When he had enemies, he could have called on legions of angels to wipe his enemies out. He could have trampled any rival. But instead, he comes as a servant who is willing to die a horrible death for his enemies. So instead of crushing his enemies, he dies for them. Paul writes in the letter to the Romans that noble people will die for other noble people. That noble people will die for noble causes. But Jesus didn't die just for people who loved him. He didn't die just for people that were willing to die for him. He died for people who hated him. And that is a self-sacrificing love that Jesus modeled for us. It is this type of love that attracted the ugliest of sinners to Jesus. When we read through the Gospels, all of these sinners, it's constantly mentioned that the Pharisees were mad at him. Why? Because sinners were coming to him. Sinners were flocking to him. 
People with some of the ugliest sins were flocking to Jesus because they understood his love for them. And when we love like Jesus loved, when we model that type of love, broken and hurting people are attracted to our church. And I think it's a really gut check question for us is, are broken, hurting people, some of the ugliest of sinners, attracted to us? I recently heard an interview with a man who came to know Christ during the AIDS epidemic. Now, he, he was gay before he came to know Christ. He was a practicing homosexual. So he knew a lot of gay men who were dying from AIDS. And it was a real gut check when he talked about how instead of giving these men hope, instead of loving them and preaching them the hope of the gospel, a lot of churches were busy telling them how horrible they were. A lot of churches, a lot of Christians were telling them that they were getting exactly what they deserved. So instead of hearing the hope of the gospel, which changes hearts, They died hopeless. Such a good important lesson for us to realize is that it is the gospel that changes hearts. Too often Christians think that we need to change behavior to give gospel. And in particular when it comes to sexuality, we think that people need to clean up their sexuality in order to receive the gospel, when it's actually so far opposite of the truth. In fact, they can't even change their sexuality until they hear the gospel. One of my great friends from seminary was also a practicing homosexual throughout college. And he'll tell you, I didn't want, I didn't choose to be gay. I didn't want to be gay. But I kept finding this attraction to men all the time. And so eventually, when the church rejected me, he actually showed up to a youth group one night, and he wanted to talk about this. He wanted to bring it up to this youth pastor because he knew that, that his feelings were wrong. And during the, the, the lesson that night, that youth pastor said, I hate gay people, and I wish they'd all go to hell. And he was like, yeah, I'm not talking to you. And so instead, he bottled these emotions up and eventually uh, took over him, and he just gave in to this lifestyle fully. It wasn't until he was in college When a group of Christians who weren't trying to change his behavior but loved him very thoroughly built a relationship with him and his car broke down. It was middle of the night and he's like, who on earth do I call? No one really loves me except for these one Christians. And he called them and they came and and they helped him. And what's amazing is he gave his life to Christ But he didn't even understand his sexuality. But slowly the Holy Spirit began to change his thoughts on sexuality. And slowly he began to change. Christ changed him and did something that most humans don't believe is possible. Today he's a happily married man to a woman. They have two kids. It's an amazing story of how God's gospel changes hearts. I think there's another horrible epidemic coming. I don't think it's like the AIDS epidemic. When we think 
about sexuality and gender. There are a lot of people by this world who are being duped into thinking they can change their gender. And they have hope that this is going to be what finally makes them happy. This is, this is what's finally going to do it for them, and they're finally going to feel joy. But we're already starting to see that false hope. And I think it's, it's not very many years in the future that we're going to see a lot of detransitioners who are hopeless and on the brink of suicide. And the question we have to ask, church, is are we going to be a place that will love them? Or are we going to be a place that says, you're only getting what you deserve, you fool? Are we going to be a place where detransitioners can hear the hope of the gospel and let the gospel change their hearts? I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. But the only way we can really do it is to be plugged into Christ, the, the source of love himself. And I think how we respond will reveal if we as a church are walking in light or if we are walking in darkness. Because if we are bitter and quick to judge and tell them you're only getting what you deserve, that reveals that we as a church are still walking in darkness. John, I think, expands on this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So we often talk about love and how it's not merely an emotional thing. I think here we need to talk about love and hate. So in John's culture, love and hate were not merely emotions. We have reduced love and hate to emotions. And so we think love is this overwhelming attractive or overwhelming affection for someone. And hate is then an overwhelming repulse, repulsion of someone, right? I am repulsed by you, therefore I hate you. And that's actually not... What, what John is getting at when he talks about love and hate. But love and hate were actually actions. When I think about this, I think about Fiddler on the Roof, when the main carrier, character, Tevia, asks his wife if she loves him, and what is her response? For 25 years I've washed your clothes. For 25 years I've cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, his bed is my bed. The idea here, oh, and then she says, if that's not love, then what is? Her Her whole point is, of course I love you. Look at all this stuff. I've been doing these actions for you. I've been sacrificing my own desires, my own needs to help build you up. That's love. It is this idea of really being committed to someone, to do what is best for them, no matter how it affects you. That's love. We look back at Jesus and his example, to do what is best for his enemies, even if it's going to cost him. That's love. And John is contrasting love with hate. So hate then would be the opposite. It's not really an emotion. It's not like the severe repulsion, but it's an action. And at its core, this action is selfishness. 
So it may not look like persecuting someone. It may not look like beating someone. It may not look like what, how we typically define love or hate. It can be something just as simple as when helping someone else hurts you, you decide not to help them. That's hate. When helping someone else inconveniences you, so you withdraw, that's hate. So for us who think hate is an emotion, it seems really easy to say, I don't hate anyone. In our culture, it's really easy for people to say, we don't hate. We're very tolerant people. We don't hate others. I'm not repulsed by you, so I don't hate you. But if we think about it in biblical terms, how often do you think of yourself before you think of someone else? How often do you put your desires before someone else's needs? How often do you use someone else to fulfill your desires? It could be as simple as showing up to church, coming into worship, but really, sometimes when you're involved in music, sometimes there's an emotional reaction, right? And you're really just showing up to worship for your own emotional reaction. And so you're really just using this whole church so that you can have an emotional reaction and feel good about yourself. That's selfishness at its core. Now, don't get me wrong. I think worship can be very emotional. But if I'm just engaging in worship so I can have an emotional reaction, I'm actually being selfish. Biblically, that's hate. If you're in a marriage because this person makes you feel good, then you're in it for yourself. I believe that's one of the main reasons why we see so much divorce these days. Because we've lost sight of what marriage is really all about. We think marriage is about me feeling good about myself. And so really, we're just using each other. We've, we've developed a culture where we just use others all the time. And it's really selfishness at its core. Biblically, it is hate. And I think we've all been guilty. And it reveals that we are still walking in darkness. So then what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. As we already discussed, this type of love is not so much an emotion, it's not this strong affection for, but it is a self-sacrificing, I'll do what's best for the other, no matter the cost to me. So it's not just about being a nicer person. It's not just about being nicer. Then the benefit is actually still you, right? If that's what it's about, if it's still about me, like using other people so that my character is better. So it's not just about being nicer, but it's a radically different way to live. And the only way to do this is by walking with Jesus. To let him to continue to change you, to submit control over to him. And as you do that, the darkness in your life fades and you begin to walk more and more in the light. To do this, you have to die to yourself. Die to your own desire. 
The word abide here means to stay, remain, or continue in a certain condition. And the idea is loving others is the evidence that we know the source of love. If we are loving others in a self-sacrificing way, that is evidence that we are plugged into the very source of love. We are tapped into the very source for love so we can love in any circumstance. We can sacrifice our own desire in any circumstance. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us how this love is displayed in what is thought of as the greatest, not just scripture, but the greatest written word on love. He writes, love is patient, meaning even tempered during adverse circumstances. It's easy to be patient when there are no adverse circumstances, right? When I'm at home, comfortable, enjoying a show, I've got all my food and my drinks right there. Wow, it's easy to be patient. But how about when you haven't had any sleep? You haven't had any food. And the baby keeps crying. I will tell you, there is no way to discover your own depravity like having children. Because they keep crying, even if you don't get any sleep. And you realize how impatient you really are. Love is patient and kind. Kindness is being considerate of others' needs. Do you think about others' needs? Are you still focused on your own desires? Love does not envy or boast. To envy means to desire others' goods. When you are not loving, you look at other people and what they have, and you say, I want that. Instead of being happy for them that they have something good. I knew a girl in high school. Now, I went to a pretty poor high school, so most of us were driving like beaters. I had this old, like, 1970s Ford Ranger that, like, I mean, literally junk fell off the ceiling as you drove. So, like, you would, like, get covered in whatever kind of weird junk it was that was falling from the ceiling on the way to school. But there was this one girl that drove uh, a brand-new Honda Civic, and it was, like, one of the nicest cars in the parking lot. And then her sister turned 16, and she got a Jeep Cherokee Laredo. Also a very nice vehicle, right? But she was so mad. I can't believe my parents bought her that. And I just got a Honda Civic. And everyone's else like, sign me up for that Honda Civic, please. It's got a six CD changer in the back. Yes. But she was so focused on herself, she could never be happy for someone else. Hate at the very core is a selfishness. Love at its very core is selflessness. So love is kind, does not envy or boast. Boasting is related to arrogance here. And here he is emphasizing that that when you are not loving, you are exhibiting self-importance, right? That you think higher of yourself. Once again, it's self-focused. You cannot be self-focused and loving at the same time. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not act shamefully to others. It does not insist on its own way. You see, once again, all of these negatives, when he lists these negatives of what love is not, it's all self-focused, isn't it? 
You cannot be focused on yourself and be truly loving. It is not irritable or resentful. It's quick to forgive. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. When someone fails, do you rejoice in their failure? Do you say, see, you're getting exactly what you deserved, you idiot. But rejoices with the truth. We focus in on the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love demands that we think the best about others. Love demands that we assume the best about others. Love demands that we put others' needs before our own desires. Love demands more of us than we can do ourselves, which is why it is evidence that we are walking, that we are abiding, that we are remaining in the light. Because we cannot properly love without God, the very source of love. And then he writes, when we love like this, there's no cause to stumble. The word stumble referred to a stick that was used to trip people. So the idea is, uh, when we are in our default mode of selfishness, when we are in our default mode of hate, putting our desires above other people's needs, we're walking in the darkness, thinking we can be fulfilled if we just get blank. So we go from one thing to another thing, thinking that these things will fulfill me. If I just get the new house, if I just get the new car, if only my septic system would no longer be backed up, I'll finally be happy. Maybe it's if I just get this job, if I just get to move to this location. For me personally, oftentimes it's if I can just have this next adventure. We'll finally be happy. And it's a, it's a loop of futility that we get stuck in. And not only are we tripping ourselves with this loop of futility, but we're also causing others to stumble. If there is someone searching for meaning and purpose, and they know you are a follower of Christ, but they see you stuck in a loop of futility just like everyone else, they might come to the conclusion that Christ really isn't that great. Christ is just like the rest of the world, leaving you empty, searching for something. He doesn't actually offer true joy and peace. But when we love as we are called to by 1 Corinthians 13, we actually have more joy. And others ask, why is this person putting others' needs before their own desires? And they see something different. And we remove that stumbling block, that stick that trips people up. So we cannot say we walk in the light and hate others. Loving others is evidence that we are walking in the light. Next, John will describe what the darkness is like. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So this is kind of in contrast with if you are living in the light, if you are loving and abiding in Christ and walking in the light, then you are not causing others to stumble. But if you are in the darkness, you will continue to stumble. If you are in the darkness, you will stumble all over the place. 
because you don't know where you're going. And the idea here is that when you leave the light, when you stop loving others to pursue your own selfish ambitions, you will get stuck in that loop of futility because you keep chasing after the wind. You pursue one thing hoping it will fulfill, only to discover that it won't. Then you chase the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. In this loop of futility, we can chase all sorts of things, from worldly pleasures to things God actually created for good, like family, like church. But if you are pursuing family and church for your own selfish reasons, you're still stuck in futility. Because you haven't died to your own desires. So on the night he was betrayed, betrayed, Jesus' disciples fought over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. As they're walking to the upper room that we've talked about a couple times today, they're actually having a fight over who's going to be the greatest. Upon hearing this argument, Jesus brings them into the room and he washes their feet. In those days, the roads were made of dirt. They were shared with animals. So as you traveled, your feet would become incredibly dirty. And it was customary for a host or a servant, at least someone in the house, to wash people's feet as they entered. Partly for the guest, but partly just to keep your house clean. Now you can imagine it was not a job for the elite. I don't think Pontius Pilate ever washed anyone's feet. I don't think King Herod ever washed anyone's feet. It was not a job someone who was inspiring to hold a high office would do. So in the midst of the argument of who would be great, none were willing to admit that they were the least and wash someone else's feet. So all of them in their their race to be great refused to wash the other's feet. And they just didn't get it. At least not yet. They were still bumping around in the dark, even though they had the very source of light in front of them, right in front of them. But this gave Jesus an opportunity to show us what love is all about. Washing the feet of those around you. Putting others' needs before your own desires. This is the life that we have been called to. This is the life that brings joy and contentment. This is what it means to abide in Christ. So you can either choose the darkness Remain pursuing your own desires, stuck in a loop of futility. Or you can walk in the light. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you modeled what love really is. That we had shadows of what love was, but we fully understood it in a new light when you came and you modeled it here on earth. And we pray that as we think about that, we would think about the gravity of God entering into humanity and washing feet. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, 
entering into humanity and suffering a brutal death on behalf of those that considered him an enemy. And we pray that the gravity of what real love looks like would begin to change our own hearts, that we would begin to die to our own desires and put others' needs before our own, that we would be a community of believers who pursue you relentlessly so that we may walk in the light as you are in the light. In your name we pray, amen.